Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another in the series of Venice episodes. If you hear the uh, thumping bass in the background, <laughs> I could say that that's because I've just emerged dazed and confused from some party, but uh, that's just the general soundtrack for the uh, red carpet adjacent area <laughs> near the Palazzo de Cinema. And for this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined again, since we uh, talked about Cannes in a clandestine remote recording by Guy Lodge. Uh, so hello, Guy. Ah, hello, Nick. It's <laughs> lovely to be recording this in person this time. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, as for the bass, I mean, I think it's the party that really just follows us wherever we go. So, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. It's true. And you just came from a festival before this, right? Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of mainlining festivals at the moment. <laughs> so I just came from Carl Vivari, and then there was kind of yeah. three days between that and, and Venice. So it's, you know, I was, I was in the groove already, but, you know, the vibes of the two festivals couldn't be any more different, especially because Venice this year was so front-loaded with all mm-hmm. the... You know, the starry big name uh, kind of you know red carpet stuff and I think that made a lot of people think that you know that the rest of the festival might be disappointing by comparison mm-hmm. but I mean I've really been enjoying now seeing you know a lot of kind of smaller interesting kind of more surprising things pop up yeah yeah no definitely um actually I can't help because I'm so curious but since you did go to Carlo Vivari I, I mean what if you what was the scene like there I mean it was very, very uh, buzzy at Carlo Ivari, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was a you know a huge kind of crowds turning up, a real oh. kind of party atmosphere, okay. um, and the you know a lot of interesting films, especially in the the competition was fairly strong. But then the east of the west side bar in Carlo Ivari, okay. which cool. kind of focuses specifically on Eastern European cinema, was really stacked this year. And yeah, it, it was altogether a kind of promising return for them. Did you did you take the waters? I did that my first year, and I have never been back, I have to say. This, uh, <laughs> I think once was enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for indulging me. I was just curious because, uh, again, I haven't really left the house that much. But anyway, I'm, I'm out here, and as you mentioned, you know, it seemed like the main things to talk about would be the movies that were in the first few days, but uh, a movie right after the weekend that screened for the press that I think we both liked quite a bit uh, was La Caja, directed by uh, Lorenzo Vigas, who's yes. um, actually won the Golden Lion. Yes, in what kind of feels like it was almost another era of Venice. I mean, it was only 2015, mm, yeah. but um, yeah, uh, his film, it was his debut film actually, From Afar, yeah. uh, which won you know the Golden Lion. I think was Alfonso Cuaron was the jury head that year, and oh. it sort of came out of, came out of nowhere. It was a real kind of dark horse winner. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a very small kind of beautiful kind of queer relationship story which I thought was a very exciting winner at the time and then since then well I think the next year they gave it to Love Diaz and then since then it's kind of pivoted to you know it's been The Shape of Water and Joker and Roma and Nomadland and kind of you know all kind of Oscar launching stuff so it, it, it sort of feels like a film that kind of came at the close of the you know the smaller more world cinema kind of Venice era um and and it's really nice to see him back because this is the first fiction film he's made since then. He made one documentary in between. But, oh, right. What was the um, documentary about again? Uh, the documentary was called The Orchid Cellar, which was actually about his own father, who was an oh. artist. Um, okay. So he's kind of got a running theme, as we'll discuss with the box, of mm. kind of fathers and sons or yeah. surrogate fathers and sons. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, La Caja is, is sort of the basic premise is that 
you know, you, it opens on a boy going to, I guess, you know, some sort of uh, massacre graveyard or, mm-hmm. or, 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 for lack of a better word, kind of dumping ground for, for murders um, to pick up the remains of his father. Um, and he gets the box. But then on the bus out, he sees a man and becomes fixated on him and that he is, in fact, his father and not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the person in the box. Yeah, exactly. And he's sort of, it's very kind of terse, stripped back storytelling. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, you're, you're kind of often kind of a beat behind what the characters are thinking and yeah. waiting to kind of see how, how their motivations pan out. But, um, and it feels so kind of sudden that, yeah, he's, you know, he's come from Mexico City all the way out to this dead end bit of North Mexico to collect his father's remains. And, yeah. you know, he's suddenly just completely out of the blue sees the stranger and is convinced that you know that is his father and i mean i think our assumption at first is that you know grief has you know is playing tricks with his mind as as it often does um but then it does get more complicated and more ambiguous than that and he he keeps pursuing this man who is a a kind of labor manager in a in a small um kind of industrial town uh, and as it turns out a, a fairly a corrupt man in his field um, and this boy keeps returning to him yeah. and you know being rebuffed every time until eventually this man his supposed father kind of caves and allows him into his home yeah and so whether or not he's his father he sort of you know manages to kind of appoint himself a father anyway yeah yeah and it's such a it's such a curious like attachment process because uh, I mean on the on the on the boys end he's that's clearly what he's decided and he's not going to stop at anything and on the father's side it's harder to read in some ways you know I feel like the uh, up pivotal moment comes almost out of some anxiety on the part of the father that the son you know will give away a little bit about the shady practices mm. of, of his business which you know he moves from you know, uh, gathering day laborers for a, a, a um, textile factory yeah. or some sort of textile press factory into building his own factory. And his, like, down payment, so to speak, on it is pretty gruesome or mm. pretty brutal. Yeah. And it's almost out of that that the father kind of fully commits. Um, and that was, that's the point where, you know, the, the movie really divides, draws a kind of division line between the sincere and the genuine yeah. that kind of dogs it throughout. Yeah, and it's because from that point also the film kind of operates as a kind of thriller on two separate levels because yeah, yeah. there's the there's the psychological kind of personal is he or isn't he element and the the relationship between this boy and this man that is either what what the boy thinks it is or or something else entirely and and yeah. it's it's not given away until very deep into the film you know how how things have actually shaken out but then also it it kind of pivots into a a a very kind of suspenseful socially conscious kind of exploration of you know the plight of migrant workers in Mm -hmm. you know in in mexico and i think in you know a lot of places like it and it's a kind of life and death stakes in in both halves and they they braid together very interestingly yeah how how they braid together is 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 a good way of putting it just because in some ways, you can analyze the movie like it's about you know management and labor, and you can sort of observe that this, the 
the boy going back and forth a little bit in terms of how he's going to deal with what he sees. Mm. But then ultimately, I think, again, it's an emotional reason that he decides to go one way or the other in, in how he addresses it. And I just thought that may not be what we always want to see in, yeah. in, a, in a movie in terms of the just thing happening, but it's probably the truest thing, and, and certainly in terms of how things play politically. And I think this is a movie that, without being too open about it, is also like working on a kind of macro-political level. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot going on, and, and Vigas is not a filmmaker to expressly explain his messages yeah. or intentions to us it's it's all left for us to intuit which i love i mean it's it's such i mean the the script for the film in terms of dialogue must be so sparse i think um yeah but he's got these two incredibly expressive actors one uh yeah. one i believe a you know a non-professional the boy is a non-professional find who has this utterly kind of riveting face i mean you can and you know he's on screen for almost all of the film we kind of follow his gaze kind of throughout and then the actor playing the the maybe dad uh <laughs> when the the boy is uh a young actor hudson navarrete who shares the same name as his, his character which i yeah. assume was kind of developed in in a kind of workshopping stage um mm -hmm. and then uh, his father is played by a, a Mexican veteran, I believe, of mostly stage work, called Hernan Mendoza, mm -hmm. uh, who's wonderful and so kind of, yeah. you know, a mixture of kind of bearishly paternal and then extremely slippery, and you never know where you stand with him, kind of right until the very end. Yeah. Um, and they have a wonderful kind of dynamic together. I think it's their performances, actually, that keep the sort of the film from becoming too opaque, because uh, you, mm -hmm. you feel a lot of it through them yeah too opaque and yeah too schematic no and it feels very kind of human and it's not mm -hmm. kind of yeah it's not out to to punish us or its characters yeah. in, in quite that way it's also beautiful i mean let's yeah. talk about you know it's shot oh, by sergio armstrong who i think is one of the world's oh, great yeah. working dps i yeah. mean he is he shot most of pablo lorraine's non-english language films um right. and just has an extraordinary kind of eye for you know color and landscape and yeah i mean what's interesting is that you expect a little quite downbeat film like this to be kind of covered in surface grit mm -hmm. and it's really not i mean it's yeah. shot on kind of gorgeous 35 millimeter um you know there's so many kind of you know vistas that feel almost kind of pictorial you know mm -hmm. sunsets and you know snowscapes and all of that and it does but it doesn't feel kind of emptily so it's not just for no. prettiness i think it really kind of isolates the characters kind of in this landscape and and they you know they have a kind of relationship to that as well um, yeah yeah it, it doesn't see like a forced like you know coolness or frigidity to mm. it. it i just more felt like i was getting a sense of a, a region and a season that i don't usually see um and and yeah it does go into winter a little um yeah. and then you know between vegas and armstrong how they switch up long shots and, and, yeah. and close-ups i mean there there are a lot of times where they're they, they keep you at, um, at a distance yeah. and give you that ob observer quality because the boy is watching yeah. all the time. Um, and so I, I really like that as well. Yeah. And there's a bit of that kind of Dardenne's trademark. <laughs> so yeah. the, the, the back of the head kind of tracking shot, which, yeah. you know, they use to great effect as well. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that it doesn't just sit in your head like a tidy package either when, when, yeah. you're, when you're done. So or I'm, a tidy box. A tidy <laughs> box, that's right. <laughs> so, there, yeah, I'm sure there's even more uh, one could say about it. But uh, let, let's talk also about another movie, which I think maybe 
seems to have a slightly lower profile, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, although it's can't avoid, you know, how it's very topical, you know, yeah. in light of, you know, the uh, I don't know what to call it, uh, absurdity atrocity going on in America and yeah. in the Texas, Texas specifically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's l'événement. <laughs> l'événement, and I think it's also being kind of marketed with the English language title happening. So sometimes at festivals it sort of takes a while for them to decide what a film is actually called in an international sense. Um, where the French title translates as the event, which I, I probably better than happening, which just sounds there's also Very the odd, um, but, uh, who who has a movie called the ha the happening. Well, exactly. You don't want to confuse it with you know <laughs> M Night Shyamalan's <laughs> worst film, maybe. Uh, so yes, very far from that. Yeah. Um, and a really uh, remarkable film from a French director who uh, has made one film before, but does not have much of a profile. Audrey yeah. Dewan. Um, and you know, straight into competition at at Venice, and yeah. so I was always kind of intrigued by this. When I was, whenever there's a wild card like that in yeah. competition, I'm like, there must be a reason. And it turns out there is because <laughs> it's a very, very controlled, very poised, very uh, frank mm -hmm. um, study of a a young woman in 1960s France. She's a kind of college student mm -hmm. uh, trying to get an abortion in a you know. At, at a time when it is such a taboo that yeah. uh, you know people daren't even kind of say the word, uh, yeah. and I mean this might feel like a story we've seen before, right. even quite recently. You know, we I think we actually spoke at Cannes about Lingui. Uh, oh, right, the, that's right. Yeah, and then of course there's the um, and never really, sometimes always, yeah. and of going back you know further than that, four months, three weeks, and two days, right. and yeah. and it fits you know right into onto the same shelf as those movies, but. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as as we've learned from recent events, apparently this is not a story that ever gets uh, yeah. irrelevant or dated. Um, and and this I felt had a had a slightly fresh perspective on it as well. It's almost unassuming, given the kind of you know graveness of the, of the event for the character. Um, yeah, almost a kind of sometimes self-effacing uh, style. It's like you're just talking about Darden. I mean, it's it's also a kind of follow-along mm. style often, um, but 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 also you know, finding kind of lovely tableaus with her and her friends sometimes. But I mean, one thing I was especially impressed by is how thoroughly they immerse you in the time period yeah. with details that I think you would take for granted at the time, but looking at them now, you, it, it becomes part of the fabric yep. of, of, of social life at the time. You're like, things like the, you know, dormitory that she's mm. in um, and, you know, ordinary details that, again, don't really probably occur to most filmmakers to include, like, you know, when they, they shower together, you know, yeah. uh, and so that means you just have an awareness of the body in just sort of a natural way, but that also becomes like, ends up being like a fraught ground at yeah. one point. And, it's, and yet it's not a kind of highly ornate or decorous period no. piece. It actually, it took me a little while into the film to kind of figure out when exactly it was set, especially because it's so often shot in kind of close up on, yeah. on the characters' faces. And they, the performance styles and the dialogue still feel quite kind of contemporary. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I was kind of picking up clues that went along. And then, you know, a few minutes into the film, there's a party scene where, you know, the guys are wearing ties and they're <laughs> kind of dancing in a style that looks, you know, suddenly I was like, OK, yeah, we're in the <laughs> early 60s. Here right. we are. But as you said, it's very kind of immersive and persuasive, but it's not like it's the 60s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
And I think that's quite deliberate, obviously, because she wants to kind of draw a, a line between past and present and and say how this, you know, this scenario could potentially still play out in many places. Yeah, and, and it really underlines that, that fact with, I mean, we can look at that and say, oh, this seems so old-fashioned, you know, yeah. everything there, but yeah, <laughs> when, when, when laws can be changed as, as, they, as they are trying to now. I Also, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the actress, Anna Maria Bartolome, I think we're spoiled by a lot of French films that, you know, if someone is in a period piece, they're going to look absolutely fantastic all the yeah. time. You know, they're going to be, even if they're dressed like, you know, a casual student, they're still going to look really cool. And she just looks, you know, normal. She looks yeah. ordinary. Uh, otherwise, she comes from, I guess, sort of a, a rural background where her family runs like a little restaurant. Yeah, and there's a very interesting kind of class tension in there yeah. because she's yeah. a very gifted student, kind of passionate about literature, which is what she's studying. Yeah. It seems that she's the first person in her family ever to yeah. go to college. And, you know, she has, and I think her family kind of, respect that and support that but there's also yeah. a bit of a you know a chasm between them because yeah. of it and her mother I think played really beautifully in a very kind of small yeah. restrained role by Sandrine Bonner I think you can feel the sense that she's you know she's gradually kind of slipping away from her family which is why you know falling pregnant at this time uh, for her feels like such a, a make or break Things get rid of it because she's about to make her escape into another mm -hmm. life and this could just pull her right back that's an aspect of the character and and the performance i really admire is her absolute tenacity that she's mm -hmm. not going to just you know take no for an answer yeah. so and because again if that's like a hard thing to do now given everything else that was so very conservative still then I, that takes incredible willpower yeah because i mean time and again you know people specifically men tend to yeah. tell her you're just going to have to, you know, lump it and go through with it. And this is, you know, this is your life now. And, and she keeps saying, no, this is, yeah. this is not my life. Why can't I, why can't I choose a different life? Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I mean, the film also has, I think this very subtly kind of um, urgent structure where it's kind of divided by the weeks, the early weeks oh, of her right. pregnancy, yeah. which almost feel like a, you know, a really sort of stomach-churning countdown to a kind of point of no return. Yeah. Because, um, you know, at, at basically at 12 weeks, she can do no more about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously no doctors will help her. Yeah. Uh, the only route available to her is the kind of backstreet abortion circuit. But that's not even that easy then because it's... Right. You have to have the connections and someone has to kind of, you know, whisper the, the connection to you. And mm -hmm. she doesn't know the right people. And it's how does she do this if no one will kind of come to her and it's it I, I felt just incredibly I mean I was tense in my seat like watching her you know absolutely firmly resolve to not let this ruin her life but suddenly with like two weeks or just a week to to make the call um, it's it's yeah. riveting stuff yeah it's very tense especially because it is you know life and death stakes for her depending on what she decides to do and talking about knowing the right people you know the hope is that you'd have some sort of support network mm. as, as, which sounds like a clinical term uh, but she doesn't necessarily have that because you know one thing the movie illustrates is just the way a lot of people fall in yeah. uh, with the you know whatever social mores of the time ready to condemn her or just have the word gets around quickly um, and that's another obstacle for her that's also 
profoundly isolating. Yeah. I mean, even her best friend says something to her like, yeah. well, you're just going to have to make your decision and I can't help you. It's which, yeah. you know, just, <laughs> Thanks. just an astonishing thing to, to, to say. Uh, yeah. and, and yet, but that is indicative of just how terrified people were of even broaching the subject at a time when, you know, even being a fairly passive enabler of an abortion mm-hmm. could land you in prison. Yeah, everybody talks about it as if it's, you know, I don't know, not to be a cliche, but like communist Russia, and yeah. you're talking about defecting or something, you know? It's that level of explicit and tacit, like, social control. It's kind of remarkable. Um, that said, I, I also, just a detail popped in my mind talking about her friends that I also wanted to mention, because it's not, I don't mean to sound like stifling as, as a movie necessarily, because there are also other little details they put in. One thing I just want to mention was this great scene where she's chatting with a couple of her friends, and one of her friends is like, oh, yeah, I used to look at my brother as like, you know whatever dirty magazines and i learned a lot and <laughs> i mean i won't give away what happens but there's just it's just this very 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 frank discussion they have yeah. and i felt this is kind of precisely what i want from a movie that's set in another time i don't want to be fed the same things i know i want to see what it might have felt like to be there and to have this kind of private moment um, i like that yeah and what they're kind of you know, sexual mores and manners and yeah. limitations were. I think it, it illustrates that very clearly. I mean, you yeah. already mentioned the very strange dynamics in her dorm where there's this kind of club yeah. of mean girls who are almost like, you know, the. I guess if, if it were today in the US, there'd be the kind of pur- purity ring brigade who, <laughs> right. who kind of like monitor her body for like, you know, if she has the slightest soreness, like, oh, is that, you know, chlamydia? Or right, it's, yeah, uh, that was crazy. Yeah, you know, really, um, really bizarre. But it kind of shows how you know, there's that kind of Puritan streak has always been kind of in society in, in different forms, even among mm-hmm. the kind of the, the young and the liberated in, in the 60s, which one thinks of as a, a slightly more liberated time. Yeah. And of course, just in, a, in like a film history aspect, if you think about the sort of movies that we see in the, that were made in the time that this is set. Yeah. It, I mean, not that I expected, you know, whatever contempt to have like an abortion subplot but just like it's sometimes very illuminating to have the social reality there yeah exactly that's a movie that i i don't know might go somewhere a, a bit um in, in terms of people paying attention to it now um, and we'll see so that is uh happening uh, aka levenmont uh from audrey duan and i think we can we can talk maybe about one more uh, yeah, yeah just one so so people know about and i'm sure people are curious about uh, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, uh, the third feature film from Anna Lily Amirpour. How would you sum this up? <laughs> How would you uh, sum the plot up? It's kind of it's uh, interesting, yeah, because she it's like you a know, ticking time bomb plot in a exactly. way. Exactly, it's uh, on on the one hand, it's quite a kind of conventional kind of caper almost. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, I guess the the one line synopsis would be escaped mental patients <laughs> kind of tries to make a new life for herself with the with the help of a kind of you know uh, stripper with heart of gold and her adorable young son and then things go kind of haywire from there yeah <laughs> um, and that yeah I think Anna Lily Amipur has designs on being quite a kind of freewheeling kind of punky kind of filmmaker uh, there's a kind of riot girl energy to yeah. uh, Mona Lisa that you know, is a lot of fun, and I think an improvement on her uh, last feature, The Bad Batch, which was also at Venice and actually yeah. won the, actually won an award here, but I thought was a real, a real kind of mess of a kind of dystopian 
adventure film. And but then, of course, people probably know her better for her debut, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, a few years ago, which was much more kind of disciplined and controlled and um, yeah. kind of yeah freaky in a more kind of formalist way. And I think Mona Lisa falls somewhere between the two. Yeah, her previous feature. I mean, we don't have to dwell, dwell on it, but it, it, it was kind of like a feel-bad, in the wrong way, dystopia. It just yeah. it just felt kind of sapped, which is a little tragic because I think one thing that you can feel she's going for with both this film and that last film is that she really does just want to channel some sense of fun yeah. from 80s movies that she likes. I mean, I think that's just a large part of it, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I would say for this movie, I, I did find it you know pretty... I found it fun, and when I wasn't expecting you know, some, like, you know, once I've settled in and realized, oh, it's not really going to try to ramp up, you know, the horror of it necessarily. Yeah. No, um, it kind of runs in place yeah. for, you know, after after the first half hour, it kind of reaches its comfort level and then kind of becomes just a vibe movie, which yeah. I sort of, I enjoyed and I also lost patience with it a little mm-hmm. bit. But I'm, I was glad that she was, she seemed very kind of comfortable doing it and she's having a lot of, there are lots of little fun kind of details. Um, and the lead, uh, Jian Jung So, who was also uh, you know, the female lead in Burning uh, a couple of years ago. And I think she's really kind of gripping screen presence. Yeah. And in such kind of stark contrast then to Kate Hudson playing <laughs> her kind of stripper pal until, you know, unthing- until things get messier. Opportunist, um, <laughs> opportunistic <laughs> exactly. pal. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Kate Hudson because mm-hmm. she tends to make just terrible movies and but i always think has something kind of sparky to give them Mm. and i think here she's really terrific actually and in kind of playing against type because she tends to play kind of good girls and here she's she's playing kind of a hot mess and (laughs) i was and i I, the contrast between the two of them because uh john jong so is so kind of introverted and controlled and Mm -hmm. kate hudson is just kind of spiraling all over the place and i think they made a really a really fun duo yeah I mean, the, the uh, Jun Jung So, she has a huge burden in just being on screens for so long and not really being given a lot of, I mean, personality as a character in the sense that she's this kind of, it's this kind of blank slate model where, I mean, I have to say, basically, if, if you want to look at an 80s slash early 90s template for the movie, it's, it is definitely T2. Um, she is um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the, the boy, who is Kate Hudson's character's uh, son, he's Eddie Furlong. From, uh, from from T2, except uh, instead of being just a delinquent, he's he's kind of a promising, you know, um, small artist. <laughs> um, but it has the same kind of like shambly energy to him, which shambolic energy, which I love, and this and this kind of casual way of delivering lines that um, I also like. Um, that yeah, was, I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. Uh, <laughs> that's probably because, for better or worse, you know how there's just some movies from your childhood that are just for some reason burned in your brain. That's T2, so sometimes I'm a hammer looking for a nail it's with It's probably it. the same for Anna Liliami, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a lot of the movie, and I think even some beat-for-beat beat scenes of where she's encountering people for the first time are also um, from that, and even the fact that she's escaped from an asylum, although that kind of... Anyway, <laughs> I'm just going to embarrass myself. But I think that she does an amazing job, um, you know, holding the screen and having to be reactive in this kind of neutral um, way to to a lot of people, it's it's pretty impressive, and you know the movie also has a kind of poppy look. Um, Anna Lily Amirpour obviously delights in like seeding it with like details from subcultures. You know, yeah. she loves having someone walk past graffiti on a wall just 
to look at it. Um, she loves having, you know, one of the people that um, they run into be this, I mean, it's almost like a taxonomy. How would you classify this, this uh, dealer? Oh, God, yes. Uh, <laughs> he is sort of vanilla ice, yeah. uh, you know, on I don't know how much meth. <laughs> but also kind of lovable, which yeah, is, I, lovable. I don't know how she and, and Ed, Ed Screen, who plays the role, I think yeah. really well, yeah. pulls that off. Um, I heard that apparently Zac Efron was due to play that role at one point. Um, oh, really? And I can see how that would have worked. But I, I'm really glad for Ed Screen because he's never got to have that much fun before. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really good. And I have to give that to the movie that, you know, even if it maybe doesn't always achieve total liftoff, I also think it it manages to subvert your expectations a lot on a lot of scenes that you know are coming up, but then play out a little differently. And I think with him, that's definitely definitely one without without giving it away. You, I mean, you kind of immediately expect expect her to be taken advantage of left and right, and it's not necessarily what happens. That's also not necessarily what happens with the dialogue um, with a cop played mm-hmm. by Craig Robinson, um, who also yeah seemed to be fairly reasonable in what he's dealing with. Yeah, I mean, what I like about Venice is that it's a festival where they will put a, a fun, weird little jam like yeah. this in competition because, hey, why not? You know, it makes... <laughs> I think Cannes has a much more kind of rigid idea of what a competition film is, whereas yes. Venice, you'll have this right next to, you know, Il Buco, the Michael uh, Michelangelo Framantino <laughs> kind of, you know, yeah. highly austere docufiction. I, it's, it's what I love about this festival is that you... You never quite know what you're going to get. Yeah, I wish I could remember what screened that morning with Blood Moon because I feel like it was an interesting pairing too, <laughs> kind of a whiplash pairing. Um, I was it the Xavier Gianoli film? Maybe was you're right. I think it was. You're right. It was Lost Illusions, yeah. a Balzac <laughs> adaptation, uh, next next to this. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, this is a movie. I have to say, it's she made it hoping to get work <laughs> to yeah. certain, you know you know it's more carefully paced and it even explicitly it, there's a reference to a sequel in it so i'll leave it at yeah. that and so i think that's fine because i think she could have fun with like a pop canvas you know um wouldn't be a bad thing if she was making movies like exactly. this exactly <laughs> you know mona lisa in the amazon or wherever <laughs> that's right yeah so yeah so that's mona lisa and the blood moon and maybe just quickly mention it because I, I think you um um guy you had seen it and i was curious about i don't know anything about it really but um madeline collins uh yes which is the opening film of this year's venice days sidebar yeah. and is directed by a frenchman called antoine barreau who i think Chandra. demonstrates a lot of style in this and i kind of went in blind only knowing that you know virginie effera yeah. who is you know so hot off benedetta from Cannes, was mm-hmm. in the lead and it is a wild ride uh, <laughs> and an amazing showcase for her, I think, who's mm. even better in it and even kind of gutsier in it than she is in Benedetta. Playing a, a woman, a, a professional kind of translator, effectively living a double life with two partners mm-hmm. and two sets of children, uh, one in Switzerland and one in France, and mm-hmm. switching kind of between them. Huh in increasingly kind of frantic and erratic ways uh and the film keeps there's kind of a hitchcockian vertigo kind of aspect to it but mixed with a kind of john cassavetti's kind of desperation and it's just carried by this bravura performance by her i mean she is kind of just you know switching between you know moods and registers and and Mm. personalities as she kind of 
seems to kind of forget who she's supposed to be at any given time. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, I, I, I think the film kind of goes a little bit off the deep end in the in the kind of final stretch. It's I was with it. I'm like, well, this is crazy but plausible and then it's like oh no this is just crazy uh, but you know I still had a great time but she yeah. is just so committed and uh -huh. so and I think anybody who enjoyed her in the Justine Trier film Sybil yes uh, recently um, will find that she has a similarly kind of manic energy in this mm. I think she's a really exciting actor yeah yeah a great year for her I think we can probably bring it in for um, a, a landing there with Madeline Collins, directed by Antoine Barreau, as, as you mentioned. And yeah, you know, there's still a couple of days uh, left. What's the next film you're going to see? Uh, the next film I'm going to see is I'm going to catch up actually with Reflection, uh, the yeah. Ukrainian competition film from last night, yes. about which I've heard good things. So. Yes, it is intense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we'll uh, wrap up there. Um, Guy, thank you. As always, a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>